What a fantastic thing to see uh, so many of you here tonight. I'd like to welcome you to the LSE, or having had the great pleasure of reading Lee Jackson's fantastic book, The Slum and Fever Capital of London, 19th Century Happily. Um, We've got a fantastic lineup tonight, and I'm just going to introduce everyone and then just say a little bit about why I'm personally incredibly uh, privileged to be able to introduce this book launch. Uh, my name's Nikki Lacey. I'm school professor of law, gender and social policy, and I've known Lee for quite well, since you came to work at LSE and have enjoyed reading his work over that time. Um, so let me just tell you, first of all, how this evening is going to work. Uh, Lee is going to talk for about 40 minutes about the book, what the book sets out to do. Uh, I suspect he's going to have some really great stories, having read the book. And then Sarah Wise uh, is on his left, is going to talk for about a quarter of an hour. And then Martin Laughlin to the left uh, is going to talk for t- ten minutes. Is that right, Martin? You're going to cut me off, Willie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, let me then just, first of all, introduce them all. Now, in a way, probably many of you will know Lee, but uh, Lee Jackson was known to quite a number of of us in this audience, originally as the most brilliantly efficient and utterly delightful web development officer ever known to an (laughs) academic department. And we just really, you know, felt a bit fed up that he was only working for us part-time. I mean, what could be better? What could he possibly be better at than that? But it turned out, yes, there was actually something he was even better at, that was even more interesting than being our web development officer. And that is that Lee had this fantastic, we all discovered pretty quickly, that he had this fantastically distinguished reputation as a writer, originally of historical crime fiction. He, as you know, started a very influential website on, um, on Victorian London, on Dickens's London, a walking guide, a, a website on Victorian London, And then after this fantastic uh, both historical and uh, career in fiction, he's moved into social history and political history. And this book, Dirty Old London, is just an absolutely marvellous book. Um, Probably some of you have seen the reviews. I'm going to read out my personal favourite quotation from The Independent, which I absolutely testify is less than the full praise the book deserves. Vivid, scholarly, illuminating, funny, well-written and beautifully illustrated, a model of its kind. It's just a marvellous, marvellous book. Now, um, I'm not going to say much about the book until I get to why I'm so pleased to be introducing it because Lee's going to really do that. But I want to introduce Sarah Wise. We're very, very fortunate to have Sarah here this evening. She's an extremely distinguished 19th century social historian. She did her master's training at Birkbeck, and her first uh, book, The Italian Boy, Murder and Grave Robbery in 1830s London, won the Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger for nonfiction, (laughs) and was also shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize. Her follow-up, The Blackest Streets, The Life and Death of the Victorian Slum, which I think is the one she's going to be really drawing on in her commentary on Lee's book this evening, uh, was published in 2008. And her latest book, Inconvenient People, sounds uh, 
rather topical, a gripping study of the Victorian madhouse, as the Wall Street Journal described it, was shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize this year. And then to Sarah's left is Martin Laughlin, my dear colleague, Professor of Public Law, who is a specialist or has been a specialist. His early work, what made him famous, was his work on local government law. So he's really ideally qualified to talk about Lee's book and the implications of Lee's book for, uh, for sort of contemporary, for, for, for the law and for the contemporary world. And can I just say that I had the great privilege of reading this book possibly before many of you because I had an advanced copy in the summer. And it just is an absolutely marvellous book. Um, I, I, I'm well qualified, I'd like to tell you, to chair this session because I live in Hampstead. And I discover from Lee's book that Hampstead, and I'm terribly sorry to admit this, it has uh, a long and undistinguished history of opting out from contributing properly, as a rich area should, to public provision. And in a way, that is exactly the core, to me, story of Lee's book and why it's so incredibly topical. It's about what happens when you have balkanisation, where you have things divided up and you can't motivate people to cooperate and contribute and redistribute. And it's just a terrifically topical book. Everybody should read it. Um, just one other thing I'd like to say, that uh, we're, we're, we're sitting here, standing here in my case, very, very close to Clare Market, which I discovered from Lee's book was, at the time he's writing of, a public laundry amid the slums. I wonder if this is a metaphor for the LSE. <laughs> Lee, fantastic. Well, many congratulations on the book. Thank you for talking about it. Thank you, Sarah and Martin, for being here. And uh, I'll uh, shut up now until you go over your 40 minutes. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, everyone, um, so much for coming. I should also just thank the Law Department for sponsoring this lecture. As Nikki said, my work for the Law Department is entirely non-Victorian, and so it's, it's kind of generous of them to think of this, and it's much appreciated on, on all sides. Um, okay, filth in Victorian London. So I think if you were to go back in time 200 years, step out the door here um, into Lincoln's Inn or indeed Clare Market, um, you would be surprised by the sheer level of dirt and filth. Um, if we start on the streets, the streets would have been paved by then, but the actual the road surface itself would be covered in what the Victorians called mud, but this was essentially a euphemism for horse dung. Um, by the end of the Victorian period, there were something like 300,000 um, horses working in London and approximately 1,000 tonnes of dung deposited daily on the streets. Um, but the mud in Victorian London was very different from the mud you would find in the countryside in two respects. One, it was black. Um, it took on the colour of the dirt, the soot that was in the atmosphere around it, the filth. And the other was incredibly sticky. Um, the reason for this was that the road surface itself was made of something called macadam, which was small pieces of granite crushed down to create a flat surface. And that sort of worked okay, but it was very easily broken. Slivers of it came off, and it worked its way into the mud. And because of this components of the macadam and the horse dung, it became this incredibly sticky substance, as someone said at the time, enough to suck off your boots. Um, and, of course, there was the smell of it. There was also, I'm going to be pretty frank in this talk, the smell of urine as well from the horses. Um, it's not spoken of much in Victorian literature, but it was there. And I think in Piccadilly in, I think, the 1860s, they resurfaced the road with 
some experimental wooden paving, sort of hardened wooden blocks instead of the granite they were using. But the shopkeepers soon objected because the urine from the horses was soaking into the wood, the smell of it was pervasive, and the ammonia was discolouring their nice brass shop fronts. Um, so that's how bad it was. And there were, there were crossing sweepers on the streets. Crossing sweepers were uh, basically beggars who would create a path across the street with a sort of makeshift broom in return for hopefully a couple of pence from the occasional passers-by. So that's what you see on the streets. And the air itself, as I say, was actually filled with soot, particularly in the winter months when people had all their fires going. Some of that was coming from factories. There were factories all along the south bank of the Thames. You see factory chimneys, uh, small sort of manufacturers in Clark and Well, um, in the East End. Increasingly, you get chemical plants towards the River Lee as the century goes on. But a lot of the soot was actually um, created by household fires. And it's everywhere. Um, you know, if you walked around Victorian London, ladies were said to need to wash their face three times a day to take off the patina of dirt. Um, the buildings were black with dirt. The statues, the parks, the leaves on the trees had this sort of grey-black sheen to them. Um, and this was still a bit... It's in the middle of the century. There was still a period when they were grazing sheep in Regent's Park still. And it was said you could tell how many days a sheep had been in the park by the colour of its coat. It started off white and got gradually blacker as the week progressed. Um, so that's sort of the atmosphere. And there were lots of other causes of... Um, concern about, so the, particularly about the smell of London. Um, one major example was actually the graveyards of London. People were being buried in the start of the 19th century in the small parish churchyards. Um, you still see them dotted around London. Um, but they were basically full. Um, and so you get increasingly parishes and, and the incumbents of these churches, a lot of whose income comes from burying people, increasingly desperate to bury people in the yards but having very little space. And you see you get coffins um, the 20 at a time into deep shafts. You get bodies being very near the surface. And if you look at some of the old churches in London, like, say, St. Anne's Soho or the church on St. Giles High Street, you'll notice that the graveyards are about three or four feet above the road. And the reason for that is the layers of extra soil they tried to put on to just cram in a few extra bodies. Um, and the other problem was that bodies increasingly were being disinterred. I mean, that always happened. They'd always had to dig up some portion of the yard to create some new space. That always happened. But by the 19th century, um, they were increasingly doing more and more, and disinterring bodies before they were fully decomposed even. And so it was not uncommon to see the sort of bones or small relics of flesh in churchyards in the early, 19, in the early 1800s. And the great concern about this was, okay, it was disgusting generally, and it was, it was impious, but the great concern about it was also about the smell of it, because there was a belief at the time, it was quite prevalent by, in the beginning of the 19th century, um, that miasma, the stench of decaying matter, was the cause of epidemic disease. So this was a great cause of concern in terms of what we now think was public health terms, although that really hadn't been invented as a concept by them. So you have this muck on the streets, you have muck in the air, you have things like graveyards. You're not quite safe in the home either because obviously you have fires, that creates a certain level of smoke if they're not running properly, but also the, you get the soot from outside, the soot in the atmosphere being drawn into the home. There's lots of writing about how around windows you'll get sort of fine granular sort of layers of soot seeping in um, through doorways. Um, the sort of cleaning routines of Victorian maids. If you've ever marvelled about the amount of time the Victorian maidservant spent cleaning the house, the sheer seemingly, seemingly obsessive detail, um, it's partly because it was so filthy. Um, and I, the filth was actually the soot in the atmosphere as well as the, the dust inside the house, the regular dust that we know. Um, and if you think about the Victorian sort of living room, you know, the, you know those glass bell jars you see over ornaments? It's not just to preserve them just for sort of prettiness, it's, it's to protect them from the atmosphere. So the home, and it also, of course, inside the home, there was the other great problem, which was um, human excrement. 
what to do about your toilet facilities. The typical early 19th century house did not have a flush toilet. Um, it would have a privy, which was basically a little more than a seat, over a hole in the ground. And that hole in the ground would um, contain a cesspool, which is basically a sort of brick chamber, generally about six foot deep, maybe four feet wide. Ideally, it would be in your back garden or backyard out the way. But it was not uncommon in London houses, especially in the city of London, in some more cramped central districts, um, to have your cesspool and privy in the basement. And obviously there's a certain degree of smell and stench there. Um, some of that actually disappeared because London cesspools were designed to be porous. They were designed for the liquid content to gradually seep out. And they didn't know anything about bacterial contamination of the water supply. No one worried about that. And so that took away some of the smell. It took away some of the bulk of the matter. And you'll get an idea of how long this went on with that. Cesspools were emptied on average every year, once a year, or every 18 months. Um, so there were quite these sort of vast chambers of filth. And they, this was common. This was how you dealt with um, human waste, as it were. But there was still this concern about the smell and whether that was dangerous. So the sort of standard history of public health in the 19th century is basically you have all these problems which I've just outlined. And the Victorians become increasingly aware of them, actually at the start of the Victorian period, I should say, in the 1840s. Um, they investigate the living conditions of the poor in the slums. They become increasingly concerned about miasma, and particularly the central of the slums to spread things like cholera, typhus and typhoid. You have the first great cholera epidemic in London in 1832. And the standard history is that these anxieties, these worries about, and these sort of statistical investigations of the poor lead basically to a raft of measures that happen in sort of the mid-century. So you're looking at the creation of public baths. Um, a vast new sewer, work, sewer network is the famous one in London, designed by the engineer Joseph Bazalgette. A lot of people have heard of that. Um, the beginnings of the social housing in the sort of 1840s, 1850s, um, what were called model housing charities, which tried to develop um, housing specifically designed for the poor. These things happen, and the, sort of the standard history, the history which the Victorians themselves gave, is that this was sort of the march of progress. They found, this, they found these problems, they, they came up with solutions, and gradually these problems were eradicated. But my book is basically saying that actually that's only at best half the story, and in a sense good PR as well. Um, because if you go to the end of the 19th century, there is still a hell of a lot of filth in Victoria London. Um, let me give you a couple of quotes. Jack London, the American sort of adventurer come writer, spent a few weeks in Whitechapel at the turn of the, um, the 20th century. And he tried to live how the poor lived and watch how they lived. And this is how he described the East End um, in 1900. The colour of life is grey and drab. Everything is helpless, hopeless, unrelieved and dirty. Bathtubs are a thing totally unknown, as mythical as the ambrosia of the gods. The people themselves are dirty, while any attempt at cleanliness becomes howling fast when it is not pitiful or tragic. Strange, vagrant odours come drifting on the greasy wind, and the rain, when it falls, is more like grease than water from heaven. So that's the East End in 1900, at the end of the Victorian period. Now you might say, well, okay, perhaps that's the, so the East End was the worst, most crowded part. Perhaps in the West End, things were a lot better. Now here's a great quote from um, someone called Lady Harbutton, who was a dress reformer. She was basically trying to persuade women to get rid of the bustles, to get rid of the tight corsets, to dress more rationally. Um, and her great book burden in the 1890s was the train in female dress. So, you know, like a wedding dress has a train behind it. There was a fashion for a small train of material on your dress. And she describes what she says, anyway, of watching a lady walk along um, Piccadilly. And then when she left and got into a carriage, there was a sort of residue of material that she swept up behind her with the train of the dress. And this is what she says, um, what was in this sort of swept-up material. Um, two cigar ends... Nine cigarette ditto, a, pa a portion of pork pie, <laughs> four toothpicks, two hairpins, one stem of a clay pipe, three fragments of orange peel, 
one slice of cat's meat, which is cat food, um, half a sole of a boot, one plug of tobacco, brackets, chewed, <laughs> straw, mud, scraps of paper, and miscellaneous street refuse. Now, <laughs> if that isn't miscellaneous already, I don't know how more miscellaneous you can get. Um, so the, work, the dirt was still there, and the mud was certainly still there at the end of the century. Uh, the fogs got worse and worse, in fact. You know, the infamous sort of pea soup fogs which you see in all the movies, they were really there at the end of the century. And so London was still very, very filthy. And okay, you know, the, Victorian, the mid-Victorians preached about cleanliness being next to godliness. They put in all these measures. But my book tries to answer, well, why then? Why did London stay so damn filthy at the end of it? So I think to explain that, I'm going to sort of rush through it very briefly, but we have to look at actually at particular problems because I think the Victorians did better in some areas than others. Strange enough, I think the one area where they had an absolutely sort of unequivocal success um, was actually in graveyards. So they noticed that the problems with overflowing graveyards in the 1820s or before the Victorian period. Um, in 1832, though, you have cholera, as I say, coming to London. Cholera, people feared cholera. They didn't know anything about it. They didn't know where it came from. They didn't know what the cause of cholera was. They thought it was from miasma. They thought it was from the stench of rotting matter. They didn't know about the waterborne aspect of it at all. Um, but that did prompt one response to the graveyard problem. Basically, what you get from 1832 is the building of commercial cemeteries in London. Kensal Green is the famous one um, in 1832. And there are <coughs> seven or eight others within the next decade. Highgate Cemetery, Nunhead, West Norwood, a couple of others. Um, and these were built really as a response to the cholera epidemic because they took people out of the central London, they were in the suburbs, they were like green parkland, sort of open spaces, they were fresh, they were clean, they did not smell. Um, and that was absolutely crucial. And they were sort of a solution, they worked for the people they were intended for. They were intended very much for the people who could afford them, the middle classes and the upper classes, they were not for the working poor. But one man would actually change that, and his name um, was George Walker. He was actually a doctor on Drury Lane, very near to here. And he looked at the crowded graveyards around Drury Lane. Drury Lane is particularly bad for its local, small, crowded burial grounds. And he decided these were one of the main reasons why they, his patients were getting sick. And he was at least tired of sort of dynamos of people. He started issuing pamphlet upon pamphlet. He staged public meetings. He, staged, he created his own organisation to promote um, proper burial. He met with archbishops. He met with politicians. And his great strategy actually was sort of to publicise the horrors of what were happening in the graveyards at the time. Um, there's a famous case in Soho where the grave diggers are found paying skittles with skulls and bones that they just unearthed under the graveyard. Um, his favourite example, though, was Enon Chapel. Now, Enon Chapel lies directly under the LSE. It was just off um, Clare Market. And it was built in the 1820s as what was called a burial speculation. So it was a Baptist chapel. But the minister who put it together built it basically to bury as many people there as he could in as short a time as possible and take the burial fees. The rates were very cheap, so you could cram in a lot of people, but that was, that was the basis of the idea. And that was sort of fine. People did that. That was one way around the burial problem. Um, but it was realised a few years after this had been going that this was a small chapel. You know, it wasn't a typical sort of modest church. That several thousand people had been interred in the vaults beneath the church. And it, was just, it wasn't the space. And after, after some investigation, it was found that actually, under the dead of night, it had been hiring people to take out bodies and body parts and bits of coffins and dump them in the countryside. Um, and there was actually a sewer running under the chapel as well, and it was believed it was pu pushing bodies into the sewer, a large sewer. Um, and so Walker publicised this and other sort of horrors. He, a he actually bought Enon Chapel um, in the late 1840s when it had already been closed for a while and showed people the crypt as sort of this freak show. And there was even in there um, the mummified remains of that minister who started um, the chapel. And it, it, it was a bizarre sort of... Uh, 
could have been up. You know, it's really weird. Um, but anyway, Walker did this. He had anything to publicise the cause. And looking for him, in 1848, you have a second cholera epidemic. And the government suddenly takes him very seriously. Um, the first scheme they come up with is actually to nationalise the whole business of burial. We could have had a nationalised burial system, including national cemeteries run by the government, uh, including the undertaking profession being a branch of the civil service. Um, but they decided in the end that it was just too expensive to implement this. And what they came up with is basically the government would loan the parishes, the local authorities, the money to build their own garden cemeteries like Kensal Green and Highgate. But that worked. That, that basically worked. Within sort of 15, 20 years, the burial problem was solved. And that's the one sort of unequivocal solution to dirt in Victoria and London. Now let's take sewers and human waste. Um, this is always touted as the great success. You always hear how Victorians dealt with sewers, and then we have these great network of sewers now. Um, but it's, it's more qualified than that, in fact. I have to go back a bit. If you go back to where I was talking about the start, the cesspools that people had, um, what happened uh, in the early 19th century is that people suddenly realised they could buy flushing toilets. They'd been around for a while, but the new models that were coming out at the start of the 19th century were rather good, and the middle classes started installing them. And initially, this is the interesting thing, initially they were connected to the cesspools. They were not connected to the sewers at all. London sewers were just removing rainwater. They were literally just to clear the ground of surface water. So originally people bought their water closets, they got the plumber to install it, they plumbed it into their cesspool. Well, hey, they were really happy. And then in a few weeks something terrible happened. They realised that all the water they were pouring into these cesspools was making them stink, much more so than they had previously. And if they were, even if they were sufficiently porous, then the water was spreading further and further afield around the cesspools. And so you got more contaminated ground around them or your basement became full of soaking, stinking water. Um, so this is a problem. Now you might think there was some great solution came in that the government stepped in or local authorities said, no. What happened is the plumbers came back to the people who had installed the toilets and they said, well actually we can fix this, we can solve this problem. Why don't we make a drain from your cesspool to the sewers? And that's how we got toilets connecting with sewers. And it was entirely from plumbers just doing these sort of ad hoc arrangements with people. Um, the local authorities who are in charge of sewers said, no, we don't want any of this. No, keep it out. We don't want that in our nice, lovely, clean water drains. They didn't, have, it didn't matter. They didn't really have any sort of powers to stop it. They certainly had the manpower to stop it. And so London gets its sort of initial sewer network. And people were just doing these sort of temporary arrangements. And, of course, where did the sewers go? They go to the river. They all flow into the river. And so by the 1820s, you have this famous scandal um, where a journalist points out that the Chelsea Water Company is drawing its water supply, tap water, because it was tap water, um, from within yards of the main sewer outfall for West London. And so the people in the West End in particular were consuming their own filth. Um, there was a big uproar about it, so the water company decided to move its outlet site. It, it sort of passed over a little. Cholera, which come, then comes in 1832, is sort of proof of the problem, but no one knows that. No one knows the waterborne aspects of cholera. And it, actually, again, it takes one man to really sort of move things on, and that, strangely enough, is a man called Edwin Chadwick. He was basically the most hated man in early Victorian Britain. Um, he invented the New Poor Law, which, if you know Oliver Twist, was the law that set up the great workhouses on a sort of prison-like basis, where you go into the workhouse, you see absolute sort of minimum fare. Um, you know, they were meant to be deterrents, really, to being poor. Um, the idea was you wouldn't want to go into the workhouse. It was a bit sort of the Ian Duncan Smith of his day. You know, it, there was a similarity, actually. Um, and anyway, Chadwick was, had all sorts of problems because he... He was, he was very dogmatic. He had a very organised, systematic scheme for what he'd do with the poor law, but the people he was working with didn't really buy into it fully. And he got into the idea of public health um, for various political reasons. We, won't, we haven't got time for that here. But Chadwick really drove things forward. He's one of these people who could really persuade government to do things. He authored very detailed reports about the problem. 
He described the state of the slums. He, decided, he described, I think, one place in might be Glasgow or Edinburgh, I can't remember, where the people were so poor that the women in the house, five or six women, shared a dress, and only one of the women could go out at a time because they were literally that poor. Um, and he, he revealed this stuff to the public and persuaded the government that something had to be done about sanitation. Sewers, he said, were the thing. Water supply was the thing. And basically he persuaded people. We won't go into the details, but he did. And by the late 1850s, there's this famous incident called the Great Stink, when there's so much sewage in the river that it persuades the government to finally invest in the sewer system. But there's actually a massive build-up to that politically over about 15 years, starting for 10 years of Chadwick constantly agitating for it. And he was kind of the man. So we have the sewer project. It's built, a vast sewer project in the mid-century. It's built by the site, Josie Buzz Joe's name you might know. But did it work? Well, yes, it did. It got the stink and the filth out of central London, but typically what it did was actually move it a little bit out of the way. And so the idea of the new sewer system is actually intercept all the filth that's pouring into the river and move it towards east London. <laughs> now, there's no one there at the time, because they move it as far out as Cross, Ness and Beckton, which is about seven or eight miles from the central London certainly five or six miles from most of the sort of built-up bit of London at the time, and which is great in 1858. But by the time you get to the 1870s, 1880s, you have East Ham, West Ham being built, working-class suburbs along the north of the river. Um, and they can smell the sewage, you know. And the worst, it, came, it became a real issue when there was an awful disaster. The Princess Alice pleasure steamer, just coming back from a day trip to Gravesend, it was packed with people, actually full of people, about 300, 400 people, I can't remember the numbers, and it was hit head-on by a massive coal boat, smashed to pieces, and I think about 90, 95% of the passengers drowned. Um, and that was literally at the very spot where the sewer outfalls were, and it was reported at the time that people were drowning in London's filth, and this really galvanised public opinion. Um, so the sewer project, yes, is a sort of qualified success. It did, that, it did that great trick that we have with waste of all sorts. I'm just moving it a bit out of the way. Okay, let's move on. The, the other, another subject, another one that people don't know about at all, actually, is what the Victorians called dust, which is their word for household waste. And the reason it's called dust is because the majority of Victorian waste <coughs> was actually cinders and ashes from the fires. They didn't have the, food, the amount of food waste we have. They didn't have the amount of packaging we had. The packaging was mostly paper. They would burn it on the fire. But they had tons, and certainly the middle and upper classes had tons of waste from household fires. And that's why you have dustbin, dustman today. That's what it means. Um, dust actually was, think, was thought of at the start of the 19th century as brilliant because it could be sold. <clears throat> There's actually a market for recycling dust. It was sold on to the brickmakers who surrounded London. London was being built up very quickly in the 19th century, and the bricks were often cut out of the London clay, and they were fired and set in the fields from where they were dug out around the city. And they used the dust. They used the, ash, the finer ashes in the actual mixture of the bricks. It helped them set. And they used the cinders in the baking of the bricks. It took about three weeks, I think, to, bake, to set a brick. And you, had to, you need a very sort of slow combustion process to spread for these sort of big clumps of bricks they had. And cinders were brilliant for that. And so they had, the household waste had a real value. And so much so that the people who were actually <coughs> passing on the household waste... <coughs> excuse me. The people who passing on the household waste, the dustmen, began to make a hell of a lot of money out of it. Um, so much so... That the dustmen were basically contractors. They were working for the local authorities in London, the parish local authorities. So much so, they were making so much money that they began to bid for collecting household waste. They would pay the parishes for the privilege of collecting household waste because they knew they could sell it so, so, at such a profit to the brickmakers. And you're actually getting the things called running dustmen or flying dustmen. 
who would creep into people's basement areas and the backs of their gardens to steal the household rubbish before the regular collector got it. It was that valuable. Um, and, of course, this was brilliant. The parishes loved it. Because what happened, what they would do is they would get all these bids in for their way, say, yes, £6,000, brilliant, you have it. And they didn't have to do a thing. And they got loads of money for, for nothing, basically. Um, and it, it was this brilliant sort of virtuous circle, you know, the, the waste, it goes out to the brick fields, brick fields get made into bricks, the bricks get brought back to London. And people joked about London rising like a phoenix from its own ashes, you know. Um, and there's a guy called Henry Dodd, who Dickens knew, who was a, who was a dust contractor, and he made... His, his fortune when he died in the 1870s was just over a million pounds in Victorian money, which is tens of millions today. Yeah. Um, <coughs> but there was a problem with dust. I know there was a problem there straight off at the start of the century, and the problem was for the poor. Strangely enough, the dustmen, well, one, one issue with poor areas was, of course, they didn't have the same quality of waste. You didn't quite, quite, you know, quite so much ashes and cinders. They might be mixed up with more rotten food, human waste, if, if their horrible cesspool was blocked up. You know. It was a more difficult collection, but also... Dustmen demanded tips. It was part of their sort of history that demanded tips, what they call sparrows, tips. You had to give the dustman a penny tip or a two-penny tip when he came to your house. Great if you were well off. The poor couldn't tip. And basically what happened was the contractors historically always steered clear of the poorer areas of London, um, only going there occasionally. And, of course, the more they left such areas, the worse the mess got in the slums. So there's always that problem. But then the middle classes start to feel the pinch as well because what happens is... Okay, the market for reselling dust is great, but it fluctuates. Um, there's a big stock market crash in the 1820s um, where people stop building houses. And because the builders don't need the bricks, therefore the dustmen can't sell the dust. And what happens is the dustmen then stop collecting the dust. And you see that happen again and again at uh, intervals. Um, but what gradually happens is it becomes more and more frequent. And the reason for that is London is growing all the time, it's expanding. And the big cost with dust is actually the transport cost, of getting it from where it starts to where it goes to the brickmakers. There's also factories um, making bricks as well, which are importing into London increasingly. And so it becomes less and less economical. And the less and less economical it becomes, the worse the dustmen get at collecting the rubbish. And sometimes people don't get the rubbish collected for weeks on end. Now, household rubbish was actually held in sort of big coal bunker type things attached to your house, not portable bins. But nevertheless, these, even these could become full. And so there's increasingly a problem. Local authorities eventually step in and say, well, we'll do this ourselves. But they struggle as well. They struggle with the amount of money it costs to hire the horses, the carts, the men. And they struggle increasingly about where to put the stuff. Um, there is one parish called Mary Newington in Southwark, which actually comes up with a great scheme. It mixes its household dust with its street refuse, sifts it a bit as the odd ingredient, and sells it as manure. And it even builds a railway station just off the old Kent Road and two stations in Kent to sell the rubbish from, from just the parish into Kent. Um, but that wasn't a realistic option for everyone. Shoreditch tried to burn its rubbish to generate electricity or to use the power it got to generate electricity, but that was never viable. Coal was always the cheaper alternative. And so at the end of the century, what you see people moving towards is landfill, just increasingly just dumping the stuff that, and sort of dreaming fondly when they used to get paid money to have it taken away. Um, so dust is, it turns into an increasingly large problem as the century progresses, in fact. And mud the street mud is linked to that because the dustmen, um, dust contractors, traditionally had shared the contract with dust removal and street removal. It's generally the same contractor doing the work. And so when the dust trade falls, when the brick trade goes down, the dust trade collapses, the dustmen, again, don't collect the mud off the streets. You can't really sell mud off the streets. It's not so good. It's mixed up with too much rubbish. You can get very little for it. It's manure. And so the, the mud doesn't get swept up. It gets left at the side of the streets. It gets swept down the drains. The mud is basically left there. And again, it's all tied to this problem with contractors, and the contractors are you know, in it for the money. If they're not getting the money, they're not doing the work. 
the parishes don't tend to hold them to account. And there's a lot, there's a lot of talk in Icelandic about corrupt, corrupt contractors, the relationships with the parishes. But partly it was also just basically the parishes thought that, okay, there's a dip in the market this year, but next year or the year after, we'll be getting several thousand pounds from these guys, so we'll let them a bit of slack. But eventually it just gets worse and worse. There's one intriguing solution for the mud on the streets. Um, a guy called Charles Cochrane, who was a weird character, um, a, ref- a would-be sort of socialist reformer in the mid-century, he came up with the idea of street orderlies. The idea was you'd have men whose job it would be to sweep up horse dung as and when it fell. So they would be on the streets. As soon as they saw some dung, they would nip out into the traffic, sweep it into a bin at the side of the road. And the people, they loved it. It seemed like a great idea, but it was just so expensive. You couldn't employ enough people. The city of London actually did it in the 1860s, 1870s, but they got around the expense by hiring children. Typical Victorian solution. But it was not uncommon to have teenagers doing, teenage boys doing the jobs, so 12 to 14, that sort of age. And yet there were these uniformed boys whose sole job was to dart in, into the traffic, removing the horse stone. But again, that couldn't be a solution for everyone, and so mud remained a problem, filling all the streets, even at the end of the century. And of course, the great overriding one is the air, the fog. Uh, London acquires the nickname of the smoke. That's why London's called, you know, the, the sheer filth. There was some attempt at regulating factories in the mid-century. A policeman, there was a law passed, and policemen were given a smoke card, which had shades of grey on it. And it, they held it, they meant to hold it up to the factory chimney. And if it passed a certain level of grey, they were meant to try and bring a prosecution. But judges were fairly, <laughs> judges were fairly lenient towards factory owners. Um, there, weren't that many, there weren't that many prosecutions. Um, when a really bad London fog did fall, there were lots of accidents. People died road accidents, and an amazing number of water-related accidents. People working in the docks fell into the docks. People walking on canals fell into canals and drowned. These were regular occurrences when there were fogs. And there were only fogs a few times a year, but it got worse and worse. Chest complaints, you know, people suffered from the chest. There was an awful incident in 1873 when the cattle show at Islington in the Agricultural Hall, which is still there, um, they had all these cattle, and she had a prize cattle um, on, on display, the sheep, the, the pigs. The gas lights were blazing, it was very hot, but it turned foggy. And the fog began to creep into the hall as it, fog was very mobile. And within about an hour or two, you know, half the animals were almost dead and they had to slaughter most of the stock fairly instantly. Um, fog crept to the things like theatres, into law courts, into art galleries. It was that dense. And yet no one was going to do anything about it. Certainly no one was going to tackle the great thing, which was the household fire. It was almost sacrosanct. The idea of interfering with people's coal fires just seemed too crazy. People loved coal fires. And the idea that you could do anything about it just seemed madness. So all these problems sort of persist to the end of the century. Um, you get the London County Council formed in 1889, which is sort of an overarching administrative body for London. And they do get interested in dirt. They, they actually do systematise rubbish collection, ensuring that rubbish gets collected. They penalise councils that don't do it. They also introduce, in the t- in question of sewers, they introduce what were called sludge boats. Um, they decide to treat, chemically treat London sewage. Instead of sending straight to the Thames, they would treat it and the sort of more substantial matter would be loaded into boats. And guess what they did? They moved it further east. <laughs> and they dumped it opposite South End on Sea. And it was dumped there for 100 years. It was only stopped in 1998 by the EU. Um, <laughs> South End should be grateful. Um, there you go. But n- little more was done by the end of the century, certainly. Um, so, this is a rather foul story. And the, Victoria, you know, the Victorian's PR was that we cleaned up London. And it did to some degree. But a lot still was left undone. And I suppose what, what lessons, if any, sort of come from this? Well, one thing that strikes me is very much the similarity of the coal fire and the car these days. You know, we all know that cars are polluting, climate change, blah, blah, blah. 
The Victorians knew full well. People have pointed out the dangers of coal fires. They knew that. But they still loved their coal fires, and it was very hard to persuade them otherwise. <clears throat> and there was also that general love of filth. There was something about London being dirty. There's so many, so many letters and magazine articles and various things talk about dear, dirty old London. Um, as if sort of, dirty is sort of quintessential to the urban experience, or at least in London. And it, I think people still think that a bit today, actually. Um, there was one Canadian journalist, Sarah Duncan, who came over in the 1890s, who actually spoke of the taste of London fog, the sort of sulfurous, cold taste, and she loved it. And she said it was the nutriment you get in your lungs. Um, <laughs> so there was a sort of love for the dirt as well. And as I sort of hinted already, it was this, this, the other thing that really strikes you looking at how, people hand, how human beings handle waste, this sort of out-of-sight, out-of-mind solution. As long as we can put it somewhere else, as long as we put it away somewhere, then that's fine. There were the problems with relationships with contractors and all that sort of thing. But, and there were issues, certainly issues with, say, corruption in the relationship between contractors and the parishes. But the out of sight, out of mind thing is sort of the overriding thing I get from it. There were vested interests opposed to cleanliness. You know, there were factory owners who did not want to pay to have their uh, factory machinery changed so they didn't let out so much smoke. There were slum landlords who were making good money on slum properties. There's, I mean, I, I researched one particular slum in Chancery Lane where the, one of the landlords was a writer praising the sanitary movement in the 1850s. He had a whole book saying how great it was that we have this new sanitation and this is a great book. But he equally had a whole raft of slum properties in his back, you know, his back pocket. Um, and the other thing that strikes me, I suppose, yes, there were vested interests, but people. Certainly in the early part of the century, there were people unwilling to think of this as a global problem, to even think that there was any problem at all. And you get people saying, well, I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm all right. I'm not going to pay for a sewer in the next parish. You get people saying, I'm not going to pay for a sewer in the next street. I'm not going to pay for my neighbour's sewer. I have my cesspool. I'm quite happy. And that attitude, that sort of... Uh, pre-public sort of sector attitude. I mean, at the end of the period, you get what's called municipal socialism. You get these sort of go-ahead, progressive, left-wing sort of public bodies in like places like Shoreditch and Bermondsey, which are building things like public libraries and public baths. And there's sort of, there is a movement towards this idea of a sort of public facilities for the people. But equally, there's very, much, there's very much an attitude against as well. And even with those the things that were built by those authorities, we, we sort of seem to be demolishing them. Now, one of my bugbears, I'm not, I'm not going to go on about it, but one of my is public toilets. The Victorians got it took them a long time, but eventually they got past various taboos to do with toilets and various things, and built public toilets. They were sort of shining temples to municipal improvement. Uh, they were really proud of them. They, they saw them as a crowning achievement of a sort of civic-minded body. And now, of course, public toilets are just increasingly being knocked down, demolished, converted, abolished. Um, under, the, under the banner of austerity, actually. Many have been lost in the last few years, and many before, indeed. Um, and, of course, now we can go to McDonald's, we can go to Starbucks. But that isn't the same. That isn't the same. But it's not the same, because when you go into those places, you're asking a favour. Mm. Have you looked at you're asking a favour? And the whole point of the public toilet was that it was there for you. And that is a big difference, and that's... I fear we've lost that sort of... <coughs> what was an early municipal ideal, and it's just... It's been demolished almost now. So, yeah, that, that's... These are all my sort of vague thoughts on the matter. And my general conclusion, I suppose, also that urban problems are very, very hard to fix. A lot of these problems have come back. Landfill, we still, demolish, we still send 50% of London's rubbish to landfill in and around the home counties. It's just got slightly further away. Um, we're about to build... Well, the mud got abolished, but mud, got, of course, got abolished because the horses got replaced by cars. So we now have a different type of pollution. Um, we're now we're about to build what's called a super sewer to replace basal jet sewers. Um, which will be, when Crossrail's finished, will be the largest construction project in Europe. That's how much London needs it. Um, 
even cemetery space, actually, a lot of suburban parishes are running out of cemetery space at the moment and arguing about how to reuse cemeteries. Oxford Street, because of the pollution of these lenders, was recently designated the most polluted street in the world for nitrogen dioxide. It's a major problem. Um, so I'm not smug about any of this. I'm not, this book is not about the Victorians, how terrible you know, their reputation is and they don't live up to it. We've solved, we have not solved these problems. I think the problems are still there and I'm not equipped to tell you about how we deal with them today, but at least I'm giving you something of the history. Well, I'm going to pick up pretty much from where Lee left off. Uh, the date is 1889, and the fantastic thing that happens is we get London gets its first London County Council. The rest of the empire couldn't believe that this capital city had blundered on uh, with its 38 medieval vestries. <laughs> right up to the end of the Victorian era. So in 1889, we get our first really proper municipal council, which rather than replacing the ancient governmental system of London's parish vestries that Lee's been mentioning, it ran alongside it, but with additional special powers. The London County Council's first medical officer of health, fantastic fellow called Shirley Forster Murphy. He asked the parish vestry medical officers of health to nominate to him any area that they believed was dangerously squalid enough and sizable enough to warrant its entire demolition. And the winner by a wide margin was the Old Nichols Slum, um, just behind St Leonard's Church, for those of you who know it, uh, in Shoreditch High Street. One of its <coughs> nicknames was Back of St Leonard's. And when, in November 1890, the County Council came to vote on a total destroy and rebuild motion about the nickname, <coughs> it was carried by a large majority. But this was no sudden lurch towards municipal socialism after decades of laissez-faire. What the London County Council intended was to spend public money on demolition only and to invite private philanthropic companies... That's the famous 5% philanthropists who've been creating, since the 1850s, lots of um, social housing for the poor, um, to invite them on board to tender, to build sanitary and spacious new streets of housing for the lowest paid Londoners and their families. And by providing a square, an empty square quarter mile of central London as an incentive, <coughs> the council really wanted to see how high the housing companies, the private companies, could raise their game in terms of design and sanitary science. Um, this was not, it must be emphasised, a state intervention in the housing market, despite the London County Council being dominated by what we today could call left-wingers and what they called progressives. The fear of interfering in markets still dominated, <coughs> a fear encapsulated by the sardonic rhetorical question put by the Tory MP for Portsmouth, if such a principle as social housing were to be permitted, where would it stop? The next demand made of Parliament might be to provide clothing, if not carriages and horses, for the poor. So the old nickel slum comprised about 30 streets, alleys and courts, filled with dead ends and eccentrically deviating routes. So that on a map, if you look at it, um, there's still plenty of maps of it, um, it just looks like a maze or a labyrinth. Almost all the buildings in the Nickel had been built speculatively at the start of the 19th century, um, though there were still a few survivors from the original wave of building in the late 17th century. And the extremely poor quality 
of the tiny early 1800s buildings, most of these houses were just eight feet in width, um, had led to the creation of an almost instant slum in the Nickel. By 1836, the entire area had been built over, but construction didn't stop there. Over the next 50 years or so, the backyards and other open spaces would sprout this kind of separate shanty-style development of workshops, stables, cow sheds, donkey sheds, uh, and so on. And local map makers and surveyors gave up in the end, just trying to keep accurate maps of the nickel. And the, the ordnance survey map that was done, that isn't really giving you much of a sense of the chaos that's going on behind the main streets. Arthur Harding, born in 1886 in the nickel, recalled that as a child, his impression was that the courts and alleys um, of the nickel had been miniaturised. The widest street was just 28 feet across, and the tiny scale of the place suggested to him that the builders um, had needed to pack people in tight so that everybody could have a home. Um, they'd been really considerate in, to use his phrase, congesting the buildings down to a small dimension. He thought that this was a charitable philanthropic thing that they'd done rather than sort of completely sort of overdeveloping and rat renting. Every one of the aspects um, of 19th century urban dirt and dilapidation so brilliantly explored in Lee's book were present in the old nickel. Let's go back to toilets. Um, illegal brick sewers, um, they, they were to be found uh, everywhere. Orange Court was a tiny court in the heart of the old nickel, and it was described by one visitor as the inner hell of this awful place, and in fact the locals' nickname for it was Little Hell. And in February 1887... Sanitary investigations revealed illegal jerry-built uh, drain pipes beneath the houses surrounding the court and a brick septic tank that was full and leaking. A surveyor in Cairns sketched the elaborately cobbled together tangle of pipes of an antiquated cesspool. He'd never, he, in his experience, had never seen anything like it down there. And so appallingly dilapidated were the houses in Orange Court that the coroner at the July 1887 inquest into the death of Mary Pope, claimed that she'd hanged herself from a nail in a wall of her room uh, with a piece of string uh, because she was aware that the downward pressure of her body from a lintel or a beam wouldn't have, it wouldn't have taken the pressure of the houses of that were that sort of rickety. Um, the state of the lavatories in the old nickel was a frequent battleground with residents and campaigners claiming that landlords either refused to connect up the WCs to the sewers and water mains, or if they had done so, that there was an inadequate water supply. Landlords, in turn, because you have to put their side, they claim that no matter how often they upgraded their facilities, rough, drunken and filthy tenants would regularly wreck whatever new appliances were installed. Now, the population of the Nickel was 5,700, of whom 40%, 40, were under the age of 15, so this was a really young demographic and in terms of ethnicity, the nickel was very unusual for these years. The 1881 census showed that 34% of Londoners had been born outside of London, whether abroad or in a different part of the UK. But in the old nickel, that, that figure plummeted to just 12.5% uh, of people being non-native Londoners. And that made it atypically racially and culturally homogeneous. The rest of London was a lot more mixed, but the nickel was abs the absolute Cockney enclave. Um, in the mid and late 1880s, Charles Booth and his investigative team, undertaking his monumental life and, life and labour of the people in London with its famous colour-coded poverty map, 
um, he discovered that while 35% of Londoners lived in what he said could accurately be described as chronic poverty, um, in the nickel that level reached its highest in the whole of London at 80%. Um, the Bethnal Green Medical Officer of Health, fantastic man called Dr George Paddock Bates, um, was one of the most assiduous of London's parish vestry medical officers, and he spent his 37-year professional life balancing his horror at the notorious uncleanness of Bethnal Green, with the old nickel as its darkest heart of filth, uh, with making sure that he didn't upset his vestry employers. If Bates was going to go so far as to get himself dismissed, then they'd simply get somebody much more compliant and lazy in. And he, he produced some absolutely impressive monthly and annual surveys of sanitation, disease and death in Bethnal Green. Absolutely exhaustive in their data, and I've read a lot across the whole of London. And I think his were actually the most sort of methodologically sound. Um, and he, disappeared, he disapproved very much. I'm sure Martin's going to come on and talk about the possibilities for, for wholesale demolition. There were two big acts of Parliament. He disapproved of the one act that permitted vestries to demolish whole areas. Um, because, he said, to demolish wholesale would no doubt be a very great hardship on the poor people, some of whom might have to go into the workhouse unless their friends consented to take care of them. He much preferred the second possible, legally possible, um, action, which was to buy up piecemeal houses, uh, and compulsory purchase, get them demolished and just replace them sort of bit by bit. Um, but along with Dr Bate, there were a number of concerned observers of the nickel slum conditions who were pushing to bring about wholesale change rather than yet more uh, classic Victorian tinkering around the edges. Reporters, reverends, charity workers, eugenicists, anarchists, <coughs> communists, philanthropists, they all had an opinion on how the old nickel's ills should be cured with solutions raised, raised, um, <coughs> ranging from mass forced emigration for slum populations to internment camps to sterilisation to garden suburbs, to prohibition on alcohol, and many other ideas besides. In fact, it's not going too far to say that the old nickel became something of a laboratory for exploring theoretical antidotes to poverty, terrible housing, and public health. Just because of time, we're going to romp through three of the main opinion formers um, from these uh, various groups. Firstly, high church Anglicans, or Anglo-Catholics, Anglo and those who had some sympathy with those men. Um, the Man Mansion House Council on the Dwellings of the Poor formed itself in 1885 as a sanitary watchdog, completely independent, but with blue blood pulsing through its veins. Um, prominent amongst its members were the Archbishop of Canterbury, his Roman Catholic opposite number, Cardinal Manning, um, Marquis of Salisbury, the Lord Mayor of London, local Bethnal Green High Church vicars, uh, and the high church flavoured Oxford University outreach settlement Oxford House, cited in the central Bethnal Green. They provided the Mansion House Committee with eager, young, unpaid, amateur, gentlemen sanitarians, plus a handy postal address. And the Mansion House Council had gloriously mixed motivations. You see this, it's a complete joy of the 19th century. People thinking with, not just speaking with forked tongue, they've got a forked brain. Um, yeah. and, um, it was politically a conservative body that looked and sounded like a bunch of radicals. Mm -hmm. It was very keen that the societal status quo should be maintained, landowner, leaseholder, tenant, um, but it absolutely believed that that hierarchy could only work if the rich really did do their duty 
towards the poor. Less conflicted with the Christian socialists, again, citing themselves deep within poor communities <coughs> and intending to carry out Christ's mission among the genuinely outcast, the chronically pauperised and destitute, that so many agencies were absolutely failing to engage with. They're very good at getting the upper working class, the artisan chap, um, but the really poor they weren't quite so successful with. Christian socialists were criticised for their retreat into the mysteries of Christianity, miracles, signs, holy ghostliness. Um, and Henry Scott Holland, who had co-founded Oxford House in Bethnal Green, he wanted to prove that high churchmen who took the Gospels literally, not metaphorically, they believed the Gospels literally, um, were totally committed to ending suffering and injustice, forcing the pace of social progress. The more you believe in the incarnation, he said, the more you care about drones. And in co-founding the Socialist <laughs> Christian Social Union in 1889, Scott Holland believed that he was carrying out the natural progression of the incarnation in which God became imminent in mankind in order to redeem the world. Um, democracy and socialism were to be the fulfilment of the divine purpose as expressed in the incarnation. Much more earthbound were the romantic socialists who dominated the early years of the architects' department of the London County Council. They envisaged freeing the working man for his, from his disgusting living conditions, the tyranny of the pub, bad or no education, and a lack of civic, cultural, and recreational amenities. As for the old nickel site, when it became apparent in July 1893 that no private builder was interested in its reconstruction, absolutely no one came forward, even though this large empty space was being offered at a knockdown rate. Um, the council asked, the four-year-old council by now, asked the Home Secretary whether its architect's department could be permitted to undertake the rebuilding itself, to give a lead and show private companies what could be achieved architecturally. The Home Secretary said a cautious yes, but he warned that the new estate must immediately be disposed of onto the private market. There could be no question of the council being a social landlord. That's not how it worked out. To sum up, over the six years that it took to construct what would become known as the Boundary Street Estate, for those of you who may know it, obviously it's still behind Shoreditch High Street, it's Grade 2 star listed now, absolutely mm -hmm. gorgeous. Um, the lack of interest by private companies, together with his growing reputation for moderation, conscientiousness on the part of the London County Council, resulted in the council at last being permitted to continue to own and be the landlord of what was about to become London's first sizable council estate. But they were fiercely policed every step of the way. So you've got big central government demanding to see every single drawing and proposal. And you've got this ludicrous situation where the Home Secretary himself, Asquith, um, many more pressing tasks than this in the 1890s, poring over the council's <coughs> planned designs for lavatory pans. Um, and it's all delightfully recorded in papers now housed at the National Archives in queue. So, just to finish off, just 11 of the 5,700 evicted Nickel residents moved on to the Boundary Street estate. <coughs> While the LCC had indeed kept its rents to the average charged in Bethnal Green and Shoreditch, only 15 of the 1,000 or so new flats were one-room dwellings, whereas half of the old Nickel slum population had, had lived in one room. Um, and that was the only type of accommodation they could afford um, so they were priced out. Um, there's very strict overcrowding regulations. Uh, Lee goes into why the model 
the, more, the private film, the 5% philanthropists didn't do so well either because there's strict rules, no ball games, keep your children quiet, don't hand your washing out. Many people said, sod that, I'm not living like that. You know, we're free Englishmen and women. We're not going to you know, have some, some, some council telling us what to do. It was a role model for the latest in sanitary science and affordable aesthetics, but as an improvement in the lives of the locals, it was a total disaster. As had happened over the preceding three decades with philanthropic housing, the upper working and lower middle classes put their names down for the new flats and they were accepted by a delighted and relieved county council who would not now have to deal with the real thing, which is Dr Bates' phrase, for the very, very poor. They just had to pack in even tighter, even worse conditions in the horrible, rotten little streets that, that surrounded the estate. So this isn't the tale of optimism that might have been expected from a forward-looking, socially-minded, progressive council who took charge of London in 1889. I'm going to end on a slightly more optimistic note. Um, a wide range of other measures um, brought about by a link between central government, local government, plus the expertise and knowledge of the best of the charitable workers and observers, led to the working-class population of London being healthier at the outbreak of World War I than they had been at the outbreak of the First Boer War in 1880. The creation of the London School Board in 1870 permitted at last, in the early 1900s, both free school meals and the medical, mass medical inspection of hundreds of thousands of poor children. Easily curable conditions could now be identified and treated for free. Old age pensions introduced in 1908. Charles Booth gave many speeches about this. Sometimes people couldn't see him on the stage because the fog had crept into the lecture hall. No word of a lie. His wife says that, you know, they're trying to see him through this mist. Uh, national insurance came three years after that. The so-called People's Budget of 1909 had a redistributive aim. Um, the workhouse and the poor laws in general were made both more humane and more efficient, partly as a result of working men and women now being able to stand for election to positions of power within the poor law administration. So likely I agree that the stubborn problems did remain at the end of the 19th century but I'd argue that the theoretical foundations at least had been laid for an altogether less uh, dirty old London in the 20th century. Thank you. As Nikki alluded to the fact, I started my academic career dealing with urban environmental law, or as I like to call it, the law of sewers and drains. So it was a great delight to read Lee's book because I don't teach this subject any longer, and I was reminded once again of why I felt it to be such an exciting and, and interesting subject. Uh, Unfortunately, I have the boring task of actually making some law out of all of this, so <laughs> bear with me. Uh, but let me put it in context. In 1801, the population of England and Wales was 9 million. In 1901, it was 32 million. It's a three-and-a-half-fold increase in the population of England and Wales during the 19th century. And if one looks at the demographic curve, it goes like that, and then the 19th century is a dramatic increase in the population. But more significantly than that was the fact that in 1801, 70% of the population 
lived in rural areas. And in 1901, 80% of the population lived in towns and cities. So not only do we have a dramatic increase in the rate of population growth, we also have a dramatic shift from urban to rural, <coughs> sorry, from rural to urban areas. There's no magic about it, of course. It's a consequence of the Industrial Revolution, and the Industrial Revolution leads to the urban revolution. And by mid-19th century, London becomes the biggest city in the world, and the rate of growth, the population growth, the, uh, and the industrial base that fuels it creates, as Lee's book demonstrates graphically, horrendous urban living conditions by the mid-19th century. And I, uh, I'm about to talk about law, but since I've got two distinguished authors on my left, I, and given where we are, I cannot resist reading <coughs> the greatest opening from the greatest novel of the 19th century. And I'll stop only when everybody's recognized what I'm reading. <laughs> London, Mickle it's even the right time of year for us. London, Michaelmas turned lately over and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall. Implacable November weather. As much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus 40 feet long or so waddling like an elephantine lizard of Hoban Hill, smoke lowering down from chimney pots, making a soft black drizzle with flakes of soot in it as big as full-grown snowflakes gone into mourning, one might imagine, for the death of the sun. Dogs indistinguishable in mire, horses scarcely better splashed to their very blinkers, foot passengers jostling one another's umbrellas, etc., etc., etc. Fog everywhere, a whole paragraph on fog. <laughs> Gas looming through the fog in divers places in the street, a whole paragraph on gas. The raw afternoon is rawest, and the dense fog is densest, and the muddy streets are muddiest near that leaden-headed old obstruction, appropriate ornament for the threshold, of a leaden-headed old corporation, Temple Bar. And hard by Temple Bar in Lincoln's Inn Hall, just over there, at the very heart of the fog sits the Lord High Chancellor in his High Court of Chancery. Bleak House. And that's London in the mid-19th century. So, we have abominable conditions, breeding grounds for disease, source of, of poor labor product productivity, but also breeding grounds for social unrest. What we get is, for complicated reasons I'm not, I won't have time to explain, I don't have any time to explain any of this, I'd love to keep you here all evening talking about the evolution of... Uh, of a legislative response to these problems. 
Uh, but, but what we get initially is clearance, well, let me put it this way, improvement of those living conditions through clearance. Because with the Industrial Revolution, we have a tremendous amount of new, large-scale Victorian architecture. Ah, Royal Courts of Justice, Hoban Viaduct, New Smithfield Market. These are all built in old slum areas. And a tremendous amount of London was redeveloped for these grand in, in Victorian projects. They cleared slum areas... The, everybody who lived in these areas were weekly tenants with no security, so they were simply displaced, and they removed the areas of the worst slum, but all they did was displace the poor to the next area, and they recreated those conditions elsewhere. It's from the latter half of the 19th century, the figure I have, but it, between 1850 and 1900, it's been estimated that 75,000 people were displaced in London alone through railway construction alone. And when you think about the railway construction in London, think this. If you go to every other city in Britain, the railway station is right at the heart of the centre of the city. In London, it's on the periphery. It's in Euston, in King's Cross, and St Pancras, or it's over in Paddington, or it's over in Liverpool Street. Why? Simple reason. They had, the railway companies had to get statutory power to be able to build, to acquire the land to build these railways. They could do it through Bristol, they could do it through Birmingham, they could do it through Manchester, they could do it through Newcastle, but when they came south to London, they couldn't get any further south than Euston Road. Why? because the streets below Euston Road are owned by the Duke of Bedford. And the streets in the west of London are owned by the Grosvenor Estate, the Duke of Westminster. And the streets on the east side are owned by the City of London Corporation. And they were too powerful. These dukes were too powerful to... And they obstructed these bills in Parliament, in the House of Lords, so they could not bring the railways into what we would regard as being central London. South of the river, it's poorer land. No great estate owners there. You can bring the Waterloo Station right up to the Thames. But the, the, the main point I want to make in relation to these changes is that what we see... I'm sorry, I'm going to do this. We have... You can't see that very well. It's not a very good pen. It's okay, I'm going to fill it in. We have what we get from the mid-19th century onwards is the evolution of statutory codes that build on one another. So first we have the public health code. 1848 is the first great general public legislation and we have put in place by 1875 uh, a public health code to deal with those problems of existing unsanitary accommodation. That is, the lack of a clean water supply, the lack of adequate sewage facilities, the lack of street lighting, the lack of street paving. The Pu Public Health Act was designed to try to deal with those problems. It also provided for minimal building bylaws for new housing. 
but for 90% of the population, those building bylaws, those minimum standards, were the maximum standards. So when you see all the standard terraces throughout different parts of Britain, and in London too, all to a standard design, it's because they're built to the minimum standards required by the local building bylaws. The Public Health Code tried to deal with the problem of existing insanitary accommodation uh, and lay down the standards for, for new house building, but it couldn't deal with the existing substandard slum housing. And that and built on the public health code then was a housing code. A housing code starts in 1868 and it's complete by about 1925. 1868, local authorities get the power for the first time to close individual <coughs> houses that are unfit for human habitation. Only in, 18, in the 1870s does it get the power to designate areas of housing as being unfit for human habitation. But that was never an effective power. Why? Because the legislation said that if you clear an area of unfit housing, you have to relocate the persons displaced in the new housing that you're building. And they looked at the problem and they realized that it was impossible to clear these areas and rebuild and be able to accommodate everybody who had been displaced if you're rebuilding in accordance with the minimum standards of the building bylaws. So they rapidly reduced that to half the, the, the population displaced, but even then it was generally a process of gentrification because the, the people who had been displaced from these areas could not afford the cost rents of, uh, the, of living in the new housing that had been replaced as a consequence of of the clearance. <clears throat> and it's only in the, from the 1890s that local authorities get the power to clear areas of housing without a rehousing obligation. But no municipal housing of any great scale takes place until after the First World War, uh, because only after the First World War do you get central government subsidies to local authorities to, to build. And then, and then on top of the Housing code, we get the town planning code, which comes from 1909 to 1947. And then finally, the, the, I'm not going to talk about the housing, the, the, sorry, the planning code. It's to provide for an efficient arrangement of urban land uses primarily and to engage in the business of urban containment, building, creating green belts to prevent cities from expanding ever further outwards. And then finally you get an environmental code, air and water pollution code, which starts in the 1860s. Lee talks in the book about, about uh, earlier provisions for smoke nuisance, but it's only from 1863 with the Alkali Acts do we get the first general legislation to deal with air pollution control. And we don't really get an environmental code until about 1995 in reality, and that's a product, <laughs> once again, of the European Union, <laughs> of requiring systematization. Now, these codes build on one another. They provide a series of legislative response that interact 
that, that uh, uh, enable us to build up a comprehensive statutory mechanism for dealing with these problems of urban conditions that are unacceptable. There's a complicated story about how these codes actually do their work, but that's a year-long course, and I'm sure you don't want me to deliver it <laughs> this evening. Uh, I should stop there. There are many stories we can talk about. I used Bleak House just because it is so apt to the issues that uh, Lee is addressing in the book, and it's right here on the doorstep. And it, it's a real joy teaching a course like urban environmental law here in London because there are so many other illustrations uh, I, I could give. Take, and I'm going to stop here. <laughs> Towards the end of the 19th century, well, Kingsway. Kingsway is another case of building a new road that goes right the way through old slum area. The, the populations that were displaced by Kingsway were all rehoused in the Bourne Estate. I don't know if you know the Bourne Estate. It's just east of Gray's Inn on Clarkenwell Road. Huge, now grade two, listed building, like your illustration, Sarah. You can see quite... Right on the physical structure of the city, you can see the impact of these changes right around us. So, on that note, I'll stop. Thank you, all three of you, for absolutely fantastic presentations, for keeping to time. So, we have about a quarter of an hour for some questions. And if you'd like to identify yourselves when you speak, that would be great. Um, yes, this gentleman here and then the gentleman over there. No, microphones are coming. Uh, <coughs> my name's David Starkey. I was a student at Tennessee in the early 60s, which is uh, prefaced by question by drawing attention to the fact that when I was a student here, London still had its pea super smogs. The last one, I think, was 62, maybe 63. Um, and it wasn't really until the Clean Air Act of 1956 that uh, got on top of that <coughs> problem of London smogs. So, you know, that's relatively recent uh, feature of, uh, of London. But my question is that when um, the areas were cleared by the public authorities towards the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century, these what we would now call slum neighbourhoods, um, you mentioned that the private sector and probably the charity sector were invited to come in and actually build new properties on those sites. Um, I haven't heard tonight mention of Toynbee and of course LSE, Toynbee Hall student resident. Um, I thought Toynbee was very important in that process 
of that rebuild. Um, and there are a lot of properties uh, in various areas that have the tag Toynbee attached to them. Um, could you perhaps fill me in on that? Maybe I'm totally wrong, but... Uh, Lee and Sarah and Martin, if you don't mind, I'm going to take two questions at a time just so that we manage to get a reasonable number in, if that's all right. And there's a gentleman over there who's got the microphone. Yeah. Uh, my name's Ernie Whitaker, and my question is directed to Lee Jackson. How would you define London? Uh, that, for instance, mid Victorian times, for, would the problem be less severe in places such as St John's Wood or Woolwich? Okay. Yes, well, go for it. Let me say, I mean, perhaps Sarah might know more about me than me about Tombe Hall specifically. Um, what I can't, I don't know much about the work of Tombe, but it was one of many um, so called model housing charities um, starting in the 1840s. Lord Shaftesbury um, starts the Society for the Improved Dwellings. I can't remember. They were lovely long Victorian now. And they're numerous in numbers. There's two additional in the 1840s. More start springing up. The Peabody Trust is, of course, one of the famous ones in London with loads of buildings around London. And they work on this principle that Sarah mentioned of um, 5% philanthropy, which is like the idea that basically it was an ethnic investment. You've got investors to invest in these charitable companies, as it were, and they will get a 5% return, but no more on their income. And the idea that would be enough to build decent houses and also pay back the people who are putting money into it as a sort of ethical investment. And... They just grow and grow as an idea throughout the century. So, so I, don't, I don't know specifically about the work of Tom because I know of it, but I, I don't know anything specifically about percentages, a chunk of the sort of social housing market. Um, but it's by no means exclusive. If you look around London, you'll see half a dozen to a dozen different um, dwellings companies that were working and building, building properties. And some are perhaps more dense in certain areas than others. So maybe if you know a particular area, there may be lots in that particular area. East End. Of course, Tormby Hall was one of these, I think, one of these sort of settlements in the East End where the... Um, I don't know which, which denomination it was associated with, but it, it, was, it, was, it was lower church than Oxford House in Bethnal Green. On, on the surface, they got on with each other, um, but in, in practice, um, Samuel Barnett, who set up Toynbee Hall, uh, he was a very broad churchman, and he was critical of all this kind of mysticism and the, the bells and smells and the robes of the people in Oxford House. Um, just to, I mean, you've given the right answer. Um, all, I would, <laughs> all I would add to that is that um, I think <laughs> Toynbee Hall and Oxford House supplied the kind of theoretical um, backup and comfort, and they say they're all coming from a sort of broadly Christian inspired left wing place. Um, but in terms of um, the LCC, I, th I actually feel that what really happened uh, in the 1890s is that I think Toynbee Hall and Oxford House did absolutely fantastic mission work amongst the poor. But when it actually comes to nuts and bolts and dealing with the Home Secretary and all the acts uh, and infrastructure that Mar Martin knows so much about, I feel that they were actually slightly irrelevant. And I feel that the reason Toynbee will have had his name attached, and I think it's specifically Whitechapel he may well have, have, been, have been connected with, I think he'll have been there sort of giving social 
uh, and charitable advice and help. But I think what you see in the 1890s is this fantastic move where this place really starts to play its part. All these people who came in, partly under the banner of charity and philanthropy, they use places like the Old Nickel and the East in general. And what they actually do, particularly the women, they go off and they, it's the formation of the, the London School of Economics. They stop it, stop it being a sort of philanthropic and charitable and religious mission to learn and help the poor. They start actually studying it, Booth being the absolute roundtree up in York and they start to turn it into social science um, so that doesn't really completely uh, answer your question but I think Toynbee probably wasn't quite as big in housing as his uh, uh, Toynbee Hall and um, Samuel Barnett weren't quite as big in housing as we might get that you know, impression What's there a connection between Toynbee and then C? Um, I don't think so. I think maybe some of the, you know, basically it's for young Oxford graduates yeah. to, are you going to go abroad to darkest Africa as a missionary? No, you're going to go to the darkest Whitechapel and learn about the problems here. So it was a way of young men deciding what to do something useful with their brilliant education and their minds. So Oxford House, Toynbee Hall, that, it was like a sort of graduate training place and I think it, it, it worked terrifically well in many, many ways. Okay, so the, the other yeah. question was mm-hmm. about... Um, was it the question about whether London was uniform and sort of mounted dirt or whether you actually got filthy? The size of it, basically. The size of it. If we moved out from what we did in the centre, would the problem be less severe? Yes and no. I mean, I think things like um, the fog and the sort of air pollution was inevitably worse where the most houses were. <laughs> you know, the, the number of fireplaces generated the more so. And so the more you get to the countryside, the problem begins to gradually disperse. Having said that, though, problems with, say, rubbish collection... Um, St. James's Parish in the centre of London, one of the wealthiest parts of London. Um, if anyone had a problem with their rubbish collection, they were, were supposed to log it with the parish clerk, and the rubbish would be... The dustman would come back that day and deal with the rubbish. Because it was a very small area they were talking about, and it was very wealthy. Um, whereas someone like St. Pancras, which had tens of thousands of residents, a massive, massive parish, a bit, bit similar to the size of, say, Islington as a borough today. Can you imagine that? If they had problems there... Just the sheer size of it um, means you would not get a quick response. And again, when <coughs> the big issue with things like rubbish was often just the sheer amount of money it cost to cart it away. And so as soon as you get these little larger suburban areas, they actually often had more problems with, with disposal of rubbish, certainly, because you couldn't get um, the manpower, the, the horse and carts, for the amount of money they were willing to pay for it. But certainly in terms of the environmental pollution, yes, broadly speaking, it's cleaner the further you got out. Having said that... Um, I think Hampstead, for instance, had um, lots of open sewers in the mid-century um, because it was originally a fairly rural area and it didn't have quite the, the compact sort of housing. So they, they decided to just leave the sort of open stream-like sewers. Um, but, of course, as it gets more and more built up, these don't really relate to what's there anymore. So there is this sort of, sort of lag of development. So, uh, yes, I think, I think worse in the sense of but there were certainly equally specific sort of suburban problems as well. Perhaps not exactly the same problems, but variants of those problems. Can I just add a footnote to what Lee says in that? I'm going to shock my law colleagues by citing a case. Uh, There's a leading case in 1870 called Sturges and Bridgman in which the judge says what would be a nuisance in Belgravia would not necessarily be a nuisance in Bermondsey. So the standards of a nuisance here is a a technical legal term for actionable, bringing in action for unreasonable interference with the enjoyment of your land as a consequence of the noxious activities taking place on neighbouring land. And so the the judge calibrated what what would constitute an actionable nuisance depending on the quality of the environment in the first place. 
fascinating. I think we've got time for one more very quick question. I'll take this at the back. Um, my name's Greta Forster. Could I just ask, was London unique, or were all big cities, capital cities, world cities um, similarly dirty? I mean, could you write a series of books on dirty old? I, wish, <laughs> I really wish I knew the answer to that, but I really don't. I mean... Um, no, I haven't but you come from that. Manchester and you know, that, you know that Engels wrote yeah, the yeah. classic work on the condition I mean, of the working class yeah. in Manchester. Yes, I mean, so, you know, industrial cities like Manchester were notoriously foul. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you the comparison. I'd love to do a comparison between Paris and London because that is the real yeah. crucial comparison to be made. Yeah. Um, but I don't speak French. Um, <laughs> and I don't, you know, I, I would the French are incredibly ahead of us in, for instance, in public toilets. Everyone was always going on about the array of public toilets and urinals in Paris. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm afraid I, I re- it's one of those awful things I really don't know the answer. Uh, you get the ideas, I've got a just tiny little bit to add. Um, I, I, I believe that Ancuts in Manchester had the worst child mortality rates in England long after Engels. I mean, this is going into the 80s and 90s. The old nickel had the highest in London by far at 250 per thousand live births for the under, under ones. But our anchors beat that, whereas the London and national average was around 150, 150 per thousand live births. Um, and funnily enough, uh, Richard Evans wrote a brilliant book about the cholera outbreak yes. in Hamburg, was it? Mm. Absolutely outstanding, one of his mm. earlier ones. Mm. And funny enough, I mean, we, were, we in the 19th century, were all, all these select committees that Lee's mind and I've mind, they're always looking across <coughs> the Paris. And what are they up to then? And everyone yeah. wants to knock the French, but in fact, they're desperate to find yeah. out how do you do it so well. <laughs> um, but, 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 but actually, um, I, 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 I suspect that... Um, certainly some of the German states who you think would have really got their act together, particularly under Bismarck, would have really got themselves sorted out. I think you find that some of their problems weren't being dealt with in a funny way, and that it's dirty old London, but I'm not convinced it's as lethal as some, some of the continental cities. Apart from anything, I don't think they had necessarily the um, data collecting. I mean, I hate to sort of you know, bang the drum and sound mm-hmm. linguistic, but I think we were getting pretty damn good with people like Dr. George Paddock Bate and actually going out and, and finding the data and then booth sort of in a larger way and roundtree up in York. I think we maybe got on to numerical sophistication. Yeah. Very sadly, I'm going to draw things to a close because the recording, which will be available on a podcast, is going to finish at eight. But I have, before I offer thanks on all your behalf, uh, I'll just give you the good news that Lee is very kindly available to sign copies of his book after the event. I know that you're all going to really want me to thank on your behalf Martin, Sarah and last but definitely not least Lee for a really fascinating evening in which you know so many of us have received the 19th century as the age of reform but they've given us this wonderful window on how complicated that process of reform was particularly in the urban context and of course Martin has shown us that the age of reform didn't end in the 19th century it really stimulated reform going right through to the late 20th century thank you for bringing the the era of the age of reform close to the era of the localism act and the bedroom tax there are lots of and also, I'd just like to end with, it was so nice that you mentioned booths. I'd just like to say to you, because many of you will be, I assume, have a long-standing interest in 19th century social history, um, so many of you probably already know that 
A, that the Booth collection, his papers, are here at LSE. B, that many of them have been digitised, including the maps, so you can download on your phone marvellous walking maps where you can zoom in on 19th century versus 20th century poverty. And in almost exactly two years' time, it's going to be the 100th anniversary of Booth's death, and we're going to be running a series of events at LSE, so we'll very much hope to be see you there and to see you and hear you two again. Mm-hmm. So thank you very, very much and congratulations. <laughs>